You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, if you could turn in your church Bibles with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, that's the passage we're going to look at tonight. Um, It is on page 672, if you have a church Bible, Ecclesiastes um, chapter 7. Ecclesiastes is a really strange book. Um, I had preached to this when at Chalmers Church, and I said to the guys at Chalmers Church on the first week of doing it, that this is like the Marmite of Bible books. I often find that people either love it, or they maybe wouldn't say they hate it, they either love it or they strongly dislike it and find it very confusing, very difficult to understand. And you can see why it would be hard to understand if you've ever read this book. Let me just um, draw your attention to chapter one. Um, It's a book written by a guy called The Teacher. It's got quite a cool enigmatic name, just known as The Teacher. We don't know for certain who The Teacher is. Most likely people think it was um, Solomon. But this is what This is how the book begins, and this is why Ecclesiastes really grabbed my attention when I first read it. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now that is not a statement you'd expect to read in the Bible, Um, but it's absolutely fascinating. Actually, the the Hebrew word there for meaningless, havel, would probably be better translated breath. So I like to retranslate verse 2 as a breath, a breath, says the teacher. Everything is just a breath. So it's this idea that everything in life that we hold to be precious is nothing more than a mist. Like if you were to step out on a cold November evening and that brief moment where you see your breath under a lampshade, the teacher is saying that is what life is like. It's just a vapor, just a breath. There's nothing that we can hold on to. And in verse three, it really sets up what is happening in the book. The teacher says, what does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? So Ecclesiastes is his experiment to try and find meaning and purpose in life. What is the most satisfactory way that we can live? He is an older man. And if we were to follow his thinking all the way up until chapter seven, you would see him talking about all the things that he has achieved in life. And there's some amazing accomplishments. Imagine the teacher in Ecclesiastes being like a wiser, older granddad. I heard somebody use that image. He's like a wiser, older granddad speaking to, uh, as you see at the end of the book, primarily a young man to try and teach him and give him wisdom. And what he's done up until chapter seven is he's kind of opened up a, a photo album of all his achievements in life. And he showed it to his grandson and told him all of that was just meaningless. It was just a breath, just a vapor. And what he's going to do now in chapter 7 is he's going to close the photo album and he's going to sit down and he's going to give us some proverbs of wisdom for how to live in life. Keeping in mind everything that he has said before. If you want to understand the book of Ecclesiastes, Vaughan Roberts, who's a minister um, down south, summed it up like this. And I think this is really helpful. Ecclesiastes is about two things, facing facts and fearing God. 
That's what the message of Ecclesiastes is. Face facts. Life is difficult. It's hard. It's frustrating. There are things that we don't understand. But fear God. That's what the teacher's wisdom is to call us to do. To place all our hope and all our trust upon God. And he is going to give us, he is going to smack us in the face with reality in this chapter. So let's read it, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I'm going to just start actually reading from 6 verse 10 because I think that is kind of where this section begins. Um, There's going to be stuff in here that is uh, going to make you squirm. I'm sure of it. Ecclesiastes chapter 6 verse 10. The teacher writes this. Whatever exists has already been named and what man is has been known. No one can contend with one who is stronger than he. The more words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days. The few and uh, a breath days that he has. It passes like through like a shadow who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone a good name is better than fine perfume and the day of death better than the day of birth it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting for death is the destiny of every man the living should take this to heart sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure It is better to heed a wise wise man's rebuke than listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is but a breath. Extortion turns a wise man into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it's not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing. And it benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. Consider what God has done. Who can strengthen what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. In this mere breath of life of mine, I have seen both of these. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise man more powerful than ten rulers in a city. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise. But this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom in the scheme of things, to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Luke says the teacher, this is what I have discovered. 
adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While I was searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand but not one upright woman among them all. This only have I found. God made mankind upright and men have gone in search of many schemes. Now, I know there was stuff in there that probably raised a few eyebrows. Don't worry, we'll get to that. Um, the famous storyteller Hans Christian Andersen wrote many good tales that often conveyed uh, profound points. Uh, and one story I particularly like that I'm sure you all know of is The Emperor's New Clothes. Um, it's the story about an arrogant emperor who hires two tailors to make for him an outfit. And these tailors manage to convince him that they have made the most amazing outfit possible out of invisible threads. And you can only see it if you're really, really smart. So the emperor parades through the streets with no clothes on, uh, and everyone pretends that they can notice these fine robes that he is wearing, when in actual fact, he is stark naked. Until a little boy comes along and points out to everyone the glaringly obvious fact that he has been pretending, that everyone has been pretending to ignore, and that is that the emperor has no clothes on. And in many ways, that's what Ecclesiastes 7 is like. The teacher here, what he wants to do, what he's doing with this younger man that he's teaching, he wants to teach his wisdom, but his wisdom is to point us towards the glaringly obvious facts of reality, facts that we, we tend to ignore or escape from. Because wisdom, wisdom for the teacher, is not just about making the right decisions in life, but it's about having a right understanding of reality. It's about having a right understanding of who you are. The famous reformer John Calvin uh, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion began by saying that all wisdom, that is all sound wisdom, consists in two parts, knowledge of ourselves and knowledge of God. Well, in Ecclesiastes 7, the teacher wants us to know ourselves, to get real, to face facts about who we are and the world we live in. And at first glance, <laughs> it's a very confusing passage. It just kind of seems like a random series of proverbs that are, are stuck together. But there is a single theme, I think, that runs throughout this chapter. One big thread upon which all these pearls of proverbial wisdom are attached. And that is, if I can put it up on the PowerPoint, there we go. Accept the limitations that God has placed in you and trust him. I think that's the main point of what the teacher is trying to say in chapter 7. Accept the limitations that God has placed on you and trust him. That's how you can be wise in life. That's how you can get real about who you are. He wants us to be real about our limitations. Don't be an escapist, says the teacher. The teacher wants us to embrace the, some of the harsh realities that we often tend to ignore. Like the little boy, he points us to the obvious facts that we often ignore. And he does so not so that we can drift into despairing introspection, but so that we will learn to put all our trust, all our hope, all that we hold dear in this life upon God, that which is not fleeting and like a breath, that which is infinite and eternal. 
So there are three sections in which the teacher, I think, wants us to be wise here. Firstly, the teacher says, wisdom comes when we accept the fact that death is the destiny that we all face. Look at verse 1 to 6, chapter 7. Um, It's quite a stark read, isn't it? I mean, it begins quite nice, doesn't it? A good name is better than fine perfume. So it's better to have uh, people speak well of you than to smell like a bed of roses. Your reputation amongst others is more important. Um, Your reputation amongst others is more important than your externals. And I think we'd probably agree with that. We'd probably think that's good. That's a nice proverb. But look how he follows that up. In just the same way then, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now what does he mean by this? Because as we read this, we may agree with the first proverb, but there's not many of us here who are going to think that death is better than birth. In fact, the teacher himself, it's strange because when you read through Ecclesiastes, the teacher laments constantly the reality of death. It's something that he finds that, that hinders his pursuit of a good life. He says in chapter 9, verse 4, that a living dog is better than a dead lion. And the verse that follows actually may be helpful to understand in his context as to what he is saying here. He's saying it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. And I think what he's saying here, and giving us this piece of wisdom, he's saying that death is better than birth in the sense that death is a better teacher of wisdom. He's not saying that that the funeral home is a more joyful place than the maternity ward, but he is saying that if you are to be wise in life, don't look back to your birth. Rather, look forward to your death. Recognize that your life is a mist. It is a vapor. It's fleeting. One day, we will die. The wise person, it, it, the wise person doesn't look back to his birth and, and think about what he could have done with his life, but he looks forward to his death and tells himself, I am going to die. Therefore, what is the best way that I can live in life now? The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure, says the teacher. The wise man goes into the funeral and he looks at the coffin and says, one day that will be me. What will they say about me at my funeral? The fool goes to the funeral and says to himself, this is morbid. I cannot wait to be out of here. I cannot wait to be in the pub with my friends and out of this. Now the teacher is not a, he's not a killjoy. He commends, all throughout Ecclesiastes, the teacher commends the enjoyment of life. But he wants us to do so in a way that is real. A way that doesn't escape from reality, but a way that embraces reality. If we use pleasure in life, so that we can anesthetize ourselves to the reality of death, we're being fools. No one's thinking about life's big questions at the party. But in the funeral home, the teacher tells us, that's where we're forced to confront reality. Isn't it? When when you're there, you do think about life and what it's about. 
Wisdom is about embracing what's real. That's why the wise person, as he says, heeds another wise man's rebuke in verse 5. Far better to listen to the rebuke of a friend who wants you to be wise than to spend your days trying to get onto X Factor. That's basically what he's saying there in verse 5. Modern translation. Far better spending, uh, spending your days in a fantasy land, pretending everything's all right, ignoring rebukes, ignoring your mortality, living for laughter. The kind of laughter the, t- the teacher says is like the crackling of thorns under the pot. In other words, it's nothing more than just a noise that's quickly there and then it's gone, it's consumed. There's no substance to it. Don't listen to the song and the laughter of folly to escape the mundanity of life and the inevitability of death. Wisdom, says the teacher, comes when we accept the fact that death is our destiny. Because when we do that, it doesn't create morbidity to our character. It creates depth. We know we're going to die. But if we follow Jesus... We also know something that actually I don't think the teacher here really knew for certain. He asks a kind of uncertain question at the end of chapter 6. Who can tell us what will happen after we are gone? He doesn't know because he lives in a time before Jesus. But we can know for certain because Jesus Christ, God himself, came down to us, he suffered, he died, he rose again from the grave. He can tell us for absolute certainty what will happen after we are gone because he has defeated death. Therefore, we look forward to our death, not in despair, but with hope. Knowing that we are going to die will teach us to make the best use of the time that we have now. And as followers of Jesus, there is one labor that we do that is not in vain but eternal. And that's telling others about him. Everything else that we have, everything that we own in life, that we regard as precious, it's just rust and dust. But Christ is eternal. So, says the teacher, let your limitations teach you to wisely make the best use of the time that God has given you. To use the brief moment of life that you have to do his work. What will he say at your funeral? The one thing we should be striving to be said at our funeral is not, oh, weren't they a nice person? But didn't they love Jesus? Didn't they love him? Didn't they want others to know Jesus? Because it's the work of Jesus that has lasting significance. So that's the first thing the teacher wants us to recognize. He wants us to get real, face facts. Death is a destiny that we all must face. Secondly, then, the teacher tells us we need to accept the fact, wisdom comes when we accept the fact that life is often hard and it's out with our control. We see that in verses 7 to 14. Now in verse 7 to 10, if you look at those verses there, the teacher lays out some of the temptations that we may face in life uh, when we're confronted with hardship. So it's the temptation of extortion in verse 7, of impatience in verse 8, there's the temptation of anger in verse 9, and nostalgia in verse 10. 
The teacher says that when these difficult times come upon you in life, the wise person will know how to handle these temptations. Because these temptations are really, again, just another form of escapism. Extortion is a way of escaping responsibility. Impatience is a way of escaping dealing with troubles when they come. Being quick to anger is a way of escaping with your ability to cope with issues. And nostalgia is about escaping the present hardships by trying to compare them with an often over-idealized vision of the past. Isn't verse 10 a great verse to look at? Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. How many times have we heard or how many times have we said that? Um, I mean, I'm only 27, but I've said that. I was talking the other day about uh, how great TV used to be uh, back in the late 90s with shows like Crystal Maze. It was a wonderful TV show. Uh, and, but then actually when you watch it on one of these like, um, digital channels, it's not, it's not really that brilliant. Uh, it's, to be honest, pretty rubbish. And yet we often have this kind of idealized ver- vision of the past. And when hardships come, the teacher says, don't resort to that idealized vision of the past. I've often heard Christians say this, often heard Christians lament about how good the church used to be, how things used to be so wonderful spiritually in Scotland. And nine times out of ten, it's not true. But even if, it's war, even if it was true, it's not wise to make such statements, says the teacher. Why? Because it ignores the reality of God's presence in the present. As if God could only act in the past. When hard times come, says the teacher, don't try and escape from them, but use your wisdom. Use wisdom. Wisdom can very often stop hard times becoming worse because, verse 11, wisdom like an inheritance is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. Wisdom offers protection. It can often stop us making decisions in life that are potentially damaging. That's why listening to the teacher is such a good and such an important thing to do. That's why the Bible has a whole genre of wisdom literature. So that God's people will know how to live in life. But when hard times seem to come out of nowhere, no matter how wise you've been, the teacher says, don't pretend it will go away. But do this, acknowledge that at the end of the day, your control over life is limited. You cannot determine what times will befall you, whether good or bad. Consider what God has done, says the teacher. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. We don't know what's going to happen to us in life. We don't know what's on the horizon for us. We live in a crooked and a broken world that is full of ups and downs. And yet many of us live with our entire lives planned out as if we can determine everything that will befall us. Right up to to what our family will be like and how our funeral will be conducted. And there's nothing wrong 
with planning or being prepared. In fact, a sign of wisdom is that you do plan and you are prepared. But if we do so to the extent that we think that we can control every area of our lives, we're being fools. This world is not ours. We don't own it. We are creatures made by God. And yet our view of ourselves can often be so high that we don't really believe that. We delude ourselves into thinking that we are the masters of our destiny, that we have control over our lives. And telling us to consider God, the teacher asks us, take your eyes off yourself and acknowledge the truth that this is God's world. We are his creatures and he is in control of what happens, not us. And you know that, again, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is not a morbid thing, but a tremendously liberating truth. Whatever happens to us is under the sovereign control of God. The good times, be happy, the teacher says, when you have them. The bad times, remember God's ordained that those bad times should happen too. This God, the Apostle Paul writes about this in, in Romans. He, he, he writes about God's control over all things. In Romans 8.31, he says this, If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the God who's in charge of your life. Wisdom. Is accepting the limitations that you have no control over the times that befall you and humbly submitting yourself to the infinite creator God who is weaving all the things in your life into something beautiful. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the teacher says God will make everything beautiful in its time. The same God who gave up his son so that we could be brought back to him. Nothing, nothing, can separate him, can separate us from his love. He's got it under control. So place your plans, place your trusts, place it all upon him and accept the fact that you are limited in this area. Thirdly then, and finally, the teacher tells us that wisdom comes when we accept that we are limited in our righteousness and wisdom. And that's what we see in verse 15 to 29. It's what the, these last verses, the teacher is, he's wrestling with something. This is what he's wrestling. He begins by posing a troubling observation. He says in verse 15, In this mere breath of life of mine, I have seen both of these the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. For the teacher, whether you're righteous or not, doesn't seem to have any bearing 
on how long you're going to live in life. Therefore, he says, verse 16, do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Now, this is a strange verse, is it not? How can, how can someone be over-righteous and I think, that what, I think that what the teacher is warning against is the kind of thinking that might have been prevalent to the people of his time. That if they just tried to be better people, they could somehow prolong their life. So people would think that right living equates to long life. And therefore there would be many pursuing a, a sort of, of, I guess, what we could call super-righteousness to try and make themselves seem really good so they could prolong their lives. So this would be the kind of people who think that they can be righteous and wise in every area of life. The kind of people who have loads of little moral rules uh, that don't really mean anything. Uh, The perfect example of this in the Bible is, of course, the Pharisees at Jesus' time. In Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus sternly rebukes them because they're so overly righteous that they tithe their spice rack thinking they're being good. But in actual fact, they've just neglected the more weightier matters of justice and mercy. And by coming up with these funny little rules, they've kind of got this super righteousness. And very quickly, they can think, Because I'm being like this, God should be kind to me. In fact, the Pharisees did think like that. We think that our righteousness could be a means of controlling the way that God treats us. Teacher says, you'll destroy yourself if you live like that. Don't get me wrong, he says. Don't be wicked or foolish. But what you are to recognize if you are wise is that both your righteousness and your wisdom will always be finite and limited. They are not things we could ever fully attain. Verse 24, wisdom is profound, it's far off. It cannot be fully comprehended. And verse 20, this is a verse that the Apostle Paul quotes in Romans 2. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. It's no such thing. You see, he's saying, he's not saying That we shouldn't strive for these things. We should most definitely thirst for righteousness as Jesus puts it. But don't deceive yourself into thinking that you will ever achieve that goal. That's an escapist attitude. That's not real. That's not wise. And you know the kind of person who does deceive himself into thinking that he is better than he actually is. Is the kind of person that is often very good at pointing out faults in other people. But slow to recognize them in themselves. Are you that person? Always quick to point out the sin in others whilst failing to ignore your own sin. Teacher gives an example of this in verse 21 and 22. Don't be surprised when you hear others speaking ill of you as if you would never do that. You hear people gossiping about you, so you go and gossip about how they gossiped about you. He sought this. He, he, he's saying to this young man, I tried to find uprightness in humanity, but I could not. I could not find it. Verse 26, again, it's not a, 
a verse that really translates well into the modern world. Um, He's basically saying to this young man to avoid uh, the allurement of sin. It could just as well be a man alluring a woman, but it just so happens that the teacher is speaking to a young man. And then in verse 27 to 29, we get this very troubling section. Now, he's not been sexist here, despite how it may sound. Literally, verse 28 should read, I figured out one man out of a thousand but I could not figure out any woman among them all. You see the words upright there in brackets in your NIV translations. So he's saying, I figured out one man out of a thousand, but I could not figure out any of them all. He's a man, he's saying here, you know, I cannot figure out 99.9% of men and women. Well, women, to be honest, just completely elude my grasp. And I think a lot of the men would probably say amen to that. The teacher, he doesn't understand. He's a wise, older man. He can't understand humanity. He can't uh, understand how humanity works. But he does know this, that God made all of us, male and female, upright. And all of us, male and female, have gone in search of many schemes. In other words, we have turned our back on God. That's what humanity is like. The teacher in this section is trying to get us to to face a fact, to face a fact that we hate to admit. Even as Christians, even though we say it, we are sinful. I would hate it if you guys here tonight could see all the things that I had ever said or thought or did, even just within the past week. If you could see me really as God sees me, I couldn't speak to you because I would be so ashamed of who I was. And yet very often I delude myself and ignore these things and make out that I'm better than I actually am. But we have to accept this limitation because when we do, we will understand the magnitude of what Jesus Christ has done. Our unrighteousness is a huge, huge problem. God's not passive to it. He has to punish all forms of sin. But Jesus came for the very reason to take the punishment of all that is wrong with us so that we could have his righteousness. My righteousness is rubbish. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3. All that I did in life, all those great deeds, they're nothing but a pile of dung. Literally what he says Nothing but dung in comparison to the righteousness of Christ. That's the righteousness that I need. That's why it's complete folly to trust in your own feeble, limited righteousness when you could have the infinite, perfect righteousness of Christ. Don't be over-righteous, but embrace the righteous standing that you have before God and Jesus Christ. Accept the fact that you can do absolutely nothing to earn God's favor and place all your trust in the fact that God has done it for you. Now do you see, in this entire chapter, the teacher wants us, he wants us to get real. He wants us to be real about the limitations that we have in life and in doing so, take our eyes off ourselves and place them 
upon God because the folly of the sinful human heart is that we think that we are better and more powerful than we actually are. The wisdom contained in this chapter is there to humble us. Like the little boy that points out the glaringly obvious fact that the emperor has no clothes, so too does the wisdom of the teacher point us to the glaringly obvious fact that we are frail, weak, finite, sin-filled creatures whose life is nothing more than a mist. Are you accepting these limitations or working against them? And if you've not got Jesus, how do you deal with that? It's true, is it not? such an accurate picture of what life is like how do you deal don't get me wrong Jesus is not some pat answer to try and numb the force of these truths but God has placed these limitations on us for the very reason that we will come to recognize that we need him all of us here are guilty of having a picture of God in which he in which sorry we are big and he is small Our lives are all that matters and God's kind of there just in a way to serve us. And that's so wrong. And if that's you, this chapter, use this chapter to reorientate your understanding of yourself and therefore your understanding of God. He is big and we are small. And following Jesus means that we can learn to love the limitations of life. Yes, I am. I'm limited. I am going to die. But I follow one who has conquered death. Yes, I will face hardships and temptations that are beyond my control. But I worship one who is who's in control of all the times and using them together for my ultimate good. Yes, I am limited in my righteousness and wisdom. But my king came to remove my sin to give me his righteousness be wise and let your wisdom humble you as you see your limitations so that it will drive you to place all your hope and purpose in life onto the one who is unlimited in power and love our king the embodiment of all wisdom the Lord Jesus let's pray together Father thank you for the teacher's honesty and wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes. Father, he exposes uh, so often the deluded picture that we have of ourselves. He forces us to confront reality, but as we do, it helps us to lean on to you, to take our eyes off ourselves and to know you better, to be changed by you. Thank you, Father, that though we are limited in all these areas, you are unlimited. Though our lives are but a breath, you are eternal and secure, unchanging. Lord, may we place all our hope and all our purpose in life, not upon these earthly things, not upon plans that we have made, um, not upon even good things that you have given us, but may our ultimate hope be upon you because all of it is fleeting and you are eternal the work of your gospel is eternal and that message brings about eternal salvation so lord i pray that this week we would be wise 
that we wouldn't be deluded, we wouldn't be escapists, but we'd see the world for how it is, and in doing so, tell others about this wonderful saviour and their creator who has come to save them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.